1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 11. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now concerning, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your Bible again and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you do that, let me pray again. Father, we are so very thankful for this time to hear from you. Lord, I ask that I would merely be here as a vessel of your truth. Give us grace, O Lord God, to not only hear what you have to say, but to understand it and to be transformed by your truth. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Just over 30 years ago, there was a movie that came out which would quickly become a Christmas classic and a favorite holiday tradition for many families. I'm sure that many of you have watched it uh, before. It's called Home Alone. And it's a movie about a little boy who is, uh, who's from a rich, big family, and he is forgotten and left behind while the rest of his family travel far away for vacation. At first, he's loving this newfound freedom that he's never had. He's doing whatever he wants to do. He's eating whatever he wants to eat. He's watching whatever he wants. But then he quickly finds himself in an unexpected situation. He discovers that a pair of burglars are going around the vacant houses in the neighborhood while the families are away on holidays, and he knows that his house is coming up next. So what does he do? Well, instead of filling himself with ice cream and watching movies all day, he he switches gears here and he starts to get serious. And he uses the time that he has to rig his entire house with booby traps so, he's, so that he's able to fend off the burglars when they come. Now, I just want to be very clear here for the kids. This is not something that you should do, what this little boy did in the movie. <laughs> okay, don't, don't do that because I don't want to get in trouble by your parents. If, if that stuff happens, then you, you call your parents right away or you call an adult. This is not something that you do. It's not realistic. But the reason why I'm bringing up Home Alone is because I think we can glean 
some wisdom from this movie about the importance of being vigilant and ready. Just like how this little boy was ready and prepared for what was to come, we too as Christians need to be ready and prepared for what is to come. When it comes to 1 Thessalonians, the theme of the second coming of Jesus Christ is woven into every single chapter of this letter. It's a major theme in this letter. But the Apostle Paul really starts to build on this theme near the end. And last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, we saw that at the end of chapter 4, it focused on how the return of Christ will affect the Christians who have died and passed away. But but here, as we come to the beginning of chapter 5, Paul now focuses on how the return of Christ affects the Christians who are alive right now. How should the return of Christ affect us in our lives? So, so that's the big question that I want us to consider as we come to this text. And Paul here is going to show us four ways that we can prepare for the return of Jesus. And first of all, we see that preparation begins with reflection. So point number one, reflect on the brevity of life. I know that in your bulletin it says consider the brevity of life. I'm changing it. This is my sermon, so I get to change it. Uh, it's reflect on the brevity of life. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Times and seasons is really just another way about talking of the end times. And and in this context, specifically when the return of Christ will happen. Now regarding this, Paul says that it's basically pointless to have anything written to you. Why? Verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord here is a reference to the final judgment day that will be enacted when Jesus Christ comes again. It's a common phrase that's used throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. Now, Now the Thessalonians here were not ignorant people. They were fully aware that this day, the day of Jesus' return was imminent, but unpredictable. They, they had no doubt that this day was coming for sure. They, they knew for a fact that they didn't know when it was coming. And the reality is no one knows and no one will ever know. And Jesus made this very clear in his earthly ministry, didn't he? Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, talking to his disciples, Jesus said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And again, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he basically said the same thing to his disciples. It is not for you, Acts chapter 1 verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or seasons, same words there, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. There have been people for a very long time who have tried to predict when the end of the world would come. And, and you can find crazy uh, predictions about that all over the place if you just look online. People are obsessed with trying to figure out when the end of the world would come, whatever version that looks like. But the Bible makes it very clear that this is a secret knowledge that belongs only to the Lord. Paul says that the Thessalonians are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
At the risk of stating the obvious, I think it's important we understand that Paul is not calling Jesus some kind of petty thief that's going to break into people's houses at night. The emphasis here of this metaphor isn't on the morality of the thief, but it's on the unpredictability of the thief. A thief will never deliberately tell you the date and the time when he's going to break into your house. Because if he does, then he's probably going to have some kind of home alone situation on his hands. The key to success for a thief is in maintaining the secrecy of his plans. No no one can know exactly when he's going to strike. It has to come as a surprise. And so in the same way that a thief comes unexpectedly in the night, Jesus' return will be unexpected and sudden. Again, in Matthew 24, verse 44, Jesus says, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In the perfect wisdom of God, this lack of knowledge concerning the date and the time of the Lord's return is meant to produce in us a sense of urgency to live every day as if it could be our last day. We need to hear these words and read these words and feel something of the brevity of life, which stirs up godly motivation to put to death right now the sins that are still lingering in our lives. We don't know if there will be a tomorrow. And that's hard to believe sometimes. Do you actually believe that Jesus could come back at any moment? The problem is that there are always people in the world living with a false sense of security that life will simply go on as per normal. Look at verse three. While people are saying there is peace and security, these are the unbelievers in the world that don't believe the final day of judgment is coming. They, they don't believe that it can come at any moment. They're, they're ignorant of the fact. They actually believe that there is peace and security. They're essentially boasting about tomorrow. And it's very clear here that if they continue to live this way, they're going to be in for a very rude awakening. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When the day of the Lord comes, it will happen suddenly and there will not be any warning. And in that moment, God's holy wrath will be unleashed upon the unbelieving world and there's no mincing of words here. It will be destructive. Paul uses a very vivid imagery of a pregnant woman in labor. And and in order for us to feel the full force of this metaphor, we need to recognize that Paul is writing this during a time where there is no such thing as advanced uh, pain medication or epidurals. A A mother knows this all too well that when the contractions start, women feel the full force of the labor pains. And despite all the calculations and predicted due dates from OBs and midwives, mothers, you know this well, that rarely do babies ever come on their actual due date. A mother can go into labor very suddenly and at an unexpected time, but when the time comes, there really is no saying, I'm not ready for this or, or I can't handle this. When it happens, it happens, whether you're prepared for it or not, and there is no escaping it. 
In the same way, when the day of the Lord comes, there will be no warning and there will be no escape. The door of the ark will be shut and the flood of God's overwhelming wrath and judgment will be unleashed upon the world. And the friends, and, and friends the, the, the question that we have to ask ourselves is what we heard even last week from Amos, are you prepared to meet your maker? If, if Jesus were to burst into the room of your life right now in this very moment, what will he find you doing? Will he be pleased or will he be grieved? Jesus is coming again whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not. And, and the way for us to prepare for that day isn't by trying to predict when that day will come, but it's by acknowledging that today, this day, could be our very last day. And so friends, the, the time is, is now to, to set aside spiritual laziness and idleness. The time is now to stop toying with sin and stop delaying repentance. The time is now to turn back to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord right now. Life is shorter than we think. There is no guarantee that tomorrow will come. And so reflect on the brevity of life. Jesus will come like a thief in the night. Secondly, Remember your identity in the Lord. In contrast to the people living with a false sense of peace and security, Paul says in verse four, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. The, the people in verse three saying peace and security are the ones who are living in spiritual darkness and, and being in the dark, they don't see clearly, they don't believe that Jesus could come at any moment, and so they're going to be surprised when it actually happens. But you, brothers and sisters, are not like the people, not like these people who will be surprised by his return. Why? Look at verse five. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Ultimately, Paul is saying that there are only two types of people in this world. There are those who are living in darkness, and then there are those who are living in the light. And, and this pairing of light and darkness is another major theme in this part of the letter. And so it's important for us to understand how Paul is using these terms. Let me explain. Recounting his conversion and his commission in Acts chapter 26, Paul talks about how Jesus said to him, this is Acts chapter 26, verse 17, Jesus said, I am sending you to open their eyes. He's talking about the Gentiles. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Right? There's the same words there, darkness to light. And what does he mean by that? Well, he basically explains what he means by what he says next. He, he's, he's sending Paul to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness and light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Being transferred from darkness to light is the same thing as being transferred from living under the deadly power of Satan to then living under the life-giving power of God. 
So the ones who are in darkness are the ones who are under the power of the devil and they're slaves to sin. Their their knowledge of what is true is clouded and distorted, and as a result, they're ignorant of the reality that Jesus could come again. But the ones who live in the light are the ones who have seen the light of the gospel of the glory of God, and they've been freed from their bondage to sin. The light has been turned on, and they can see clearly now that Jesus will come again, and that is their great hope. The prophet Isaiah says that a great light will shine in the darkness, and we know that he was prophesying about Jesus because Jesus is that great light that broke into our dark world, and he has given you, Christians, the light of life so that you would be forgiven of your sins and that you would be adopted into his family, and that you would be called children of light. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's making an identity statement about all believers, about all Christians. You are not children of darkness. Your identity is not bound up in your sinfulness or your vocation or performance or what you have done or where you come from. You are first and foremost children of light. That is your identity in Christ. That is what you need to remember about who you are in the Lord. You are children of light. And it's important that we remember our true identity in the Lord because that shows us how we are to live in this world. Look at verse six. He says, so then, so then because we are children of light and not children of darkness, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, once again, Paul is not talking about literal sleep here. He's using it as another metaphor of letting your guard down. It's a reference to spiritual carelessness. It's where you just give up on the pursuit of righteousness and you give in to the temptation of sin. You neglect to read your Bible, to pray, to come to church, to fellowship. Those are the kinds of behaviors that are consistent with the children of darkness. But since you are children of the light, you need to stay awake. You need to be watchful. Keep one eye out on the return of Jesus Christ while keeping the other eye on the conduct of your life. And you're to be sober. This communicates the idea of self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. You see, whenever we give in to sin, we're not exercising self-control. Rather, we lose control and we're submitting ourselves to the desires of the flesh. Be awake and be sober Now, staying consistent with the metaphor of darkness, Paul continues in verse 7 by saying, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Sleep and drunkenness, which is symbolic of unholy living, are common behaviors that take place in the night. That's what people usually do. When it's nighttime, they go to bed, or if they're out and they're partying, they usually get drunk. And both are meant to characterize a lack of self-control, now, now, once again, if you were children of darkness, then this kind of unholy living would be expected because you'd be simply acting according to your nature and according to your identity. But verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us be self-controlled in the conduct of our lives. And how do we do that? How do we maintain spiritual sobriety? 
Well, he explains how to do that by what he says next. Verse eight, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, how? Having put on the breastplate of faith and hope and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. If you want to be spiritually sober, then you must be a good Christian soldier. A soldier must put on his armor properly in order to prepare for the battle ahead. If he takes his armor off and exposes his vital points, his head and his heart, and the, the, the enemy attacks, then he's most likely going to lose his life on the battlefield. But if he's a good soldier and he's always keeping his armor on in the theater of war, then he will be ready for any kind of surprise attack. In the same way, we as Christians are to arm ourselves, put on the breastplate and put on the helmet of the Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope. Did did you catch that triad? Faith, love, and hope. This is one of Paul's favorite combinations of of, a combination of words. It's, It's it's favorite combination of Christian virtues. It basically summarizes the whole of the Christian life. First, he says that we need to put on the breastplate of faith and love. And I understand that to mean we need to guard our hearts by putting our trust in Jesus Christ and believing again and again in the good news of the gospel. We also need to arm ourselves and guard our hearts with love for others. That means uprooting any kind of bitterness, anger, wrath, slander, and and, and malice, and replacing it with acts of kindness, compassion, generosity, and service. That's how we put on the breastplate of faith and love. Secondly, we are to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. And that means we need to guard our thoughts with the truth that we have the hope of eternal life and glory. Listen, just because you are children of light does not mean that you will never have to deal with the prince of darkness again. Jesus, Satan will use every tactic and skill that he has to, to lie to you, to confuse you, and to distract you from the truth. He is going to want to pull your mind away from the hope that is yours in Jesus. And that's why we must arm ourselves by putting on the hope of the, helm, the, the helmet of the hope of salvation. Even though the day of judgment is coming, a terrifying day, a frightening day, a day that is marked by holy wrath and perfect justice. The reality is our souls can rest easy knowing that we have in Jesus the hope of glory. So here's the third way that we prepare for the return of Christ. Rest in the hope of glory. Verse nine, for God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I just want you to pause and think about that for a moment. These words here are meant to be a great comfort to you because Paul is telling us here that that Christians, for, for, for Christians, our destiny has already been predetermined by God. And so when the day of judgment comes, that frightening and terrifying day, it will not be a day of suffering, but it will be a day of salvation. 
Now, in case you were inclined to think that this final salvation was somehow dependent on you and your performance and on how well you did in in practicing faith, love, and hope, Paul makes it very clear here that it is not dependent on you. It never was, and it never will be. You will not deliver yourself from the wrath to come. You will not obtain salvation through your own merits and your own strength. And friends, that is great news. This final salvation, this last deliverance from the wrath of God to come is through, look at the end of verse 9, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul basically said the same thing earlier in his letter in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. He said, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Not Pastor Steve, not Pastor Paul Martin, not your works, not anything about you. This is all about Jesus. Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come. Jesus doesn't only save you in the beginning and then leave us, leave you to just figure it out yourself. The point here is that Jesus is our sole Savior all the way, right into glory. It's all about Jesus. Our hope for deliverance from the wrath of God is all bound up in Jesus Christ and him alone. And the only reason why Jesus is able to do this is because he alone died on the cross for our sins. Look at verse 10. Speaking of Jesus, Paul goes on and he says, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This right here is the very heart of the gospel. Christ died for us. He bore our sins and hung crucified on the cross so that he alone would suffer the full wrath of God. And so when that day of judgment finally comes, the point is there will be no ounce of wrath left since it was all poured out on Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. But it's only good news if you respond to it by turning away from your sins and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. If you're here today, even the young ones, if you're here today, then the time is now to respond. It's not tomorrow, it's not later on, it's not after you've experienced the thrill of this life. The time is now. Jesus Christ is coming again. The day of judgment will come, and yes, it could come a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now, three thousand years from now, but it could also happen in this very second. And so I need to ask you again, are you ready to meet your maker? Are you prepared for the return of Christ? The good news is that you can be by repentance and faith. So do that now because Jesus gives us this great hope. And it's not only a a hope that is bound up in deliverance from wrath, but as we see here, it's also a hope that is bound up in our union with him. Look at how verse 10 ends. It says, well, it begins by saying, who died for us so that, here's the reason for the gospel, here's the reason why Jesus died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him, with Jesus. 
Paul uses the same words awake and asleep here, but, but he's not using it the same way as he did earlier. He's not talking about awake as being spiritually watchful and asleep as being spiritually careless. If he did, then he would really be undermining everything that he's just talked about. So that can't be the case. So when he uses these words awake and asleep in this particular verse, he's simply referring to being alive or being dead, which would be consistent with how he's used this metaphor before, right? At the end of chapter four, he talked about Christians who have passed away as being those who are asleep. So, whether you're alive, or even if you should die in this world from old age, sickness, or persecution, the climax of our hope, the very height of our hope is in the reality that we will live and we will be with Jesus forever. We prepare for the return of Christ by reflecting, remembering, resting, and finally, by encouraging one another with these truths. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Yes, we need to take these truths from this text and and impress them upon our own hearts But but we have a Christian responsibility to impress these truths upon one another. When you see an apathetic sister in the Lord living carelessly and toying with sin and not coming out to church, pray for them. But then as the opportunities arise, remind them that Jesus could, could come back at any moment and therefore we must be ready and prepared at all times. In this way, help them reflect on the brevity of life. When you see a brother with a sensitive soul struggling uh, to believe in their justification because they're utterly defeated by their shortcomings and sins, then you could take these words here and comfort them and remind them of their true identity in Christ, that they are children of the light. And then exhort them to, to live in accordance to their identity. Call them to stay awake and alert. When you see a fellow believer who is anxious and nervous about death and what is to come, then you can take your Bible, open it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and read out loud verses 9 and 10. John Piper called verses 9 and 10 his precious cancer diagnosis text. His precious cancer diagnosis text. The day that he memorized this verse or these verses was the same day that he later walked into his doctor's office and he was told that he needed to do a biopsy for prostate cancer. And when that terrible news came, this right here was the text that sustained him through all his fears. In these verses, he found rest for his soul, knowing that he was not destined for wrath before salvation. And even if he should live on and be cured from his cancer, or even if he should die because of his cancer, he knew that he would ultimately live forever and be with Jesus Christ. So friends, right here are precious words to meditate on and to share with others when the bad news comes and hits like a truck. 
We are destined for salvation in Jesus Christ. The little boy from home alone knew the burglars were coming, and so he prepared accordingly. In his case, it meant setting up a bunch of booby traps around the house to fend off the bad guys. For us, we know that Jesus will return like a thief in the night. And so in the same way, we too must prepare accordingly. But in our case, it's by reflecting on the brevity of life, remembering our identity in the Lord, resting in the hope of glory, and encouraging others to do the same. May God give us the grace to do that. Amen.